Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books and Intellectual History, we have Dr. Graham Russell Gal Hodges, who is the George Dorland Langdon Jr. Professor of History and Africana Studies at Colgate University in Hamilton, New York. He is the author of Black New Jersey, 1664 to the present day. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hodges. Thank you, Dr. Williams. Very pleasure. My pleasure to be here. Thank I appreciate you uh, doing this interview. Black New Jersey is a unique text in that it is the first survey history of African-Americans in New Jersey history from the colonial era to the present day. First, we will discuss Dr. Hodges' biography and some thoughts on intellectual history in general, and then we will engage in a more detailed discussion of Black New Jersey. It's also important to note that Black New Jersey is an award-winning text and well-deserved. Dr. Hodges, please tell us some more about your teaching and research interests. Sure. Uh I have been teaching at Colgate University for over three decades. My bread and butter is early American history, so I teach the survey and more advanced courses uh, in American history up to 1877. Uh, I also have done a lot of courses on New York City history, uh, some on Asian American history. And I should uh, also say in terms of our conversation today that when I teach early American history, I include a substantial amount of African American history because, of course, uh, blacks were so important uh, to early America. Uh, my research interests um, are varied. I uh, my first book was on the New York City cartmen, who were drivers of two wheeled carts uh, between 1667 and 1850, uh, and they're the natural ancestors of cab drivers. So I later did a book called Taxi: A Social History of the New York City Cab Driver. Uh, after doing my first book, I became very involved in the Black history of New Jersey and New York City. And I've done a number of books on that, including uh, Root and Branch, African-Americans in East in New York and East Jersey, 1667-1863. Uh, Black New Jersey also did a book on David Ruggles, a black abolitionist in the Underground Railroad in New York City. Uh, in addition to the taxi book, I branched out to do a biography of Anna Mae Wong, uh, from Landryman's Daughter to Hollywood Legend. This is the story of the foremost Asian-American actress ever. And I did a triple biography of Tadeusz Kosciuszko, Thomas Jefferson, and Agrippa Hall, and a pact between Jefferson and Kosciuszko, which has New Jersey relevance, uh, about Kosciuszko awarding all of his uh, lifetime earnings to freeing blacks and educating them and giving them land in America. Jefferson never did it, but Gary Nash and I did a book on that about 10 years ago. Uh, so I'm, I've got a number of things under the belt already, a lot of documentary histories, uh, but I'm always working and looking at new projects. 
Yes, I think it's important to note that uh, Dr. Hodges is a uh, prolific scholar of, of 16 books or more. Uh, yeah, if you about nine books written by myself and then about another eight or nine books, I kind of lost count, uh, that I've edited. Uh, one, for example, is uh, Pretends to be Free, Runaway Slave Notices from uh, Colonial Revolutionary New York and New Jersey. And that was published back in 1994. And I was really pleased to do a 25th anniversary edition this last year because those runaway notices are terrific capsule texts of ordinary people who self-emancipated. Uh, and we'd learn a lot about who they were, what they looked like, um, their intellectual uh, interests, their skills, and it's a terrific book. So I've had a lot of fun doing documentary history books like that. Okay. So um, you mentioned that you've done some work on New York and New Jersey. So how did you come to study the history of African Americans in New Jersey in particular? Why not another state like Pennsylvania? Well, I'm from, I've lived much of my life in New York City. Um, but when I finished my PhD back in 1982, uh, and the world yawned in indifference, um, my mentor, Carl Prince, who's a very prominent New Jersey historian, hired me as a, an associate editor on the William Livingston Papers. And of course, he is New Jersey's revolutionary uh, era governor. Uh, one of the letters that I, ha I was working on, and this is after I'd already gotten the project on the Cartman, I'd done his dissertation and was about to publish it as a book. One of the letters had to do with a man named Colonel Ty, uh, who was uh, a self-emancipated person who had belonged to John Corley's from Monmouth County. And Ty later came back uh, from, he escaped in 1775, came back a couple of years later as a leader of a motley crew of whites and blacks who raided the Patriot lines, uh, kidnapped people, uh, took ca cattle over to the British line, did all kinds of things for the British. And so this, these letters were appeals to Governor Livingston to declare martial law so that uh, the locals could defend themselves against Colonel Ty. And I really got into this guy, and I thought, this is fascinating, because, you know, we use the, the uh, method whereby every letter has to have full annotations. I had learned about him, about the people that he captured, about the places where he made his raids, all of these things to create the context of this intellectual document, uh, this letter. Uh, and with that, I noticed that New Jersey had very little work done on the history of black people, of enslavement and freedom, back to its origins, or for that matter, up to the present. And so I thought, this is interesting. I kind of got into it and I got hooked. And uh, now, almost 40 years later, I'm still working on it. Yeah, I think that's an important thing that you note that uh, much of the work on the history of African-Americans in New Jersey, obviously, there are many scholars who've been working towards, you know, laying the groundwork. But uh, this book is, you know, it's so important in, in terms of why I wanted to uh, interview you is that it's really the first comprehensive survey history published by an academic press that gives us a sweep of African-American history in New Jersey. And if we could elaborate a little bit on this, this um, role of African-Americans in early New Jersey history, I think many people either overlook or maybe the, the old saying, New, New Jersey gets overlooked by New York. 
But people forget the role that African-Americans play in the early history of the state. Could you say some more about the 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 importance of African-Americans in the colonial era? African-Americans are critical to the development of the colony and later the state of New Jersey from its origins, even the pre-colonial times when New Jersey is an adjunct of New Netherlands in the 1620s uh, up through the establishment of the colony in 1664. Uh, New Jersey's black population is the, the critical mass of laborers throughout the colonial period and really substantial. I mean, places like Bergen County, uh, enslaved people are 40% of the population, of all wow. the population, in the 1730s and 1740s. Uh, and that's uh, that, that, that kind of representation is true throughout the colony. Uh, and after the revolution, they continue to be significantly important. Uh, New Jersey is the last northern state to establish a Gradual Emancipation Act in 1804. Uh, it's heavily contested by slave owners, and there are still enslaved people under kind of an obscure permanent indentured servitude status as late as the 1850s and 18, early 1860s. In fact, right. one of the things I did, I did a book on Monmouth County uh, on slavery and freedom in the rural north, was to, to my astonishment, was to find fugitive slave notices published in the Monmouth Democrat in 1857. Imagine that. Wow. You know, they're still trying to hunt these people down who have escaped uh, from freedom. Now, back to your point about uh, New Jersey being overlooked. Uh, famously, New Jersey is regarded as a pitcher with two spouts, one of them at Philadelphia and the other in New York. And of course, these big metropolises uh, overshadow New Jersey in some ways, but Jersey feeds Philadelphia and New York uh, in the same way that today New Jersey is an extremely important uh, bedroom community for workers in New York. Uh, Newark is a sizable city on its own. Uh, New Jersey combines rural and urban populations uh, as almost no other state. And one of the little factoids that I like to mention is that there are about 30, uh, about 30 million people living between the Philadelphia airport and City Island in Northern Bronx in New York. And of that, uh, a substantial portion are African-American. Indeed, about 20% of all blacks in the United States live in that straight line between uh, New York and Philadelphia, and a lot of them are in Jersey. So, uh, mm. <coughs> excuse me, it's a history uh, which must be told because it's significant. And really? uh, as the our great historian of New Jersey, Marion Thompson Wright, once mentioned, it's in New Jersey that you find all of the variations of black freedom and slavery. Right, exactly. It's... Um... Another aspect of New Jersey history is often said that it's both the North and the South at the same time. Yes. And that has implications for the colonial era through the civil rights era, which we'll get to a little bit when we talk more about your book. You mentioned these ads and um, the importance of these as a sort of expression of thought or intellectual history. And uh, we could now turn our focus to this idea of what is intellectual history I just it just made me think of uh, this notion of maybe the intellectualism of the everyday or everyday intellectualism that people, you know, engage in. Everybody has the capacity to think. Mm -hmm. So your book gets into a discussion of, you know, 
Black elites and professionals. And so oftentimes we think of intellectual history as a discussion of elites, academics, or professionals. So my question is, what is intellectual history and how does the term relate uh, to the history of New Jersey? The intellectual history, very formally, is the the history of ideas and thinkers, and it's kind of closely associated with the history of philosophy. Uh, And it depends on whether you regard it in sort of a platonic sense that histories are, uh, that ideas are separate from uh, from, from human beings, that they sort of exist in this, this heavenly atmosphere, or if you, and I think this is more the way it's done now, uh, regard intellectual thought within context. And context can mean the historiography of ideas, or it can mean something that's heavily influenced by a series of variables, whether that would be economics uh, or uh, society, uh, race, gender, uh, even religion. Uh, all of these things are, as you had pointed out, uh, uh, ideas that are produced by history by by people, uh, regardless of their rank in society, uh, and that the fact that we have uh, someone who's a very esteemed philosopher from the University of Oxford, uh, his ideas are in context in the same way uh, that a laborer from Bergen Counties would be in the 1750s. All of these people are thinking, uh, right. and what they're thinking about is what we find fascinating. Uh, so when we think about someone like Mark, who is a a preacher who escapes from uh, his master uh, in 1774, uh, Mark is described as someone who's, you know, a very powerful thinker, someone who has a lot to say about important subjects. It's things his master says about Mark uh, after he's fled uh, and uh, from, from, from slavery. Uh, so here's Mark, who is, a, you know, in some ways a very ordinary guy, uh, but someone who also is uh, capable of, as they say, has much to say on the subject of religion. Well, that's kind of a history of ideas. Uh, we'd like to know more a lot what Mark said, but we don't have any books by him, but we have an indication that he's thinking and he's talking and he's convincing others. Right. It's uh, the history of ideas, thought, thinkers. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, especially because the way we do history in the United States now has been so heavily influenced by the turn to social history in the 1990s. I mean, you know, Joan Scott's major idea about gender as a category of history in 1987, that influences everything. So, you know, we really now see all actions, all thinking in terms of a social context. Right. Right. Much of, I mean, I introduced the book by saying and it's a survey, but the point that you said, you know, it's also about context uh, when we talk about human thought and ideas. And so you give us this, I think, with many particular individuals like Marion Thompson Wright, we give her the category of intellectual. She's got a PhD and we say, mm-hmm. obviously, she fits this category. But then there are other individuals on page seven, two, 217 in your book talk a little bit about Ernie, Ernie Thompson, mm-hmm. who's a factory worker. Yes, a factory worker, an activist, a political organizer, right. uh, someone who has a very lengthy career, has his successes and his failures. Uh, he's uh, an important organizer for unions in New Jersey. Uh, his daughter, of course, is now uh, an important professor of uh, religion and sociology at uh, in Columbia University. So, I mean, there's a family mm-hmm. Uh, which is cl- very clearly uh, uh, preoccupied with ideas. Right. Absolutely. I uh, So 
I think, and he's writing things down. Ernie Thompson oh, yes. is writing speeches. He's writing, he's co-writing two books with his daughter. And I always find him amazing because he's a factory worker and union organizer. And he's writing things down in, this, in the more traditional sense that we think about intellectuals. They write books. They write things down. Well, he's doing that too. Well, of course, amazing. the thing about African-Americans in New Jersey uh, and they have always been heavily burdened by racist oppression. And this was a case in the colonial era. It was certainly the case after gradual emancipation. There's a brief period during the 1770s when there are things getting a little bit better. Then you get Jim Crow lasts well into the 1950s and 1960s. Some people say it never ended. Uh, and now we have the uh, more recent uh, discrimination. All of that is to say that African-Americans didn't have the access uh, to universities, to tenured positions. Uh, they were not encouraged. In fact, they were discouraged from writing. They still produced a lot of books, but it's not the kind of thing that before we would consider to be part of an intellectual stream because they're they're really outside. You know, they're behind the veil, as Du Bois would put it, right. uh, and they're not seen as part of the of intellectual history but of course they're critical to it and they're critical to the understanding of america and i think our current predicament shows just how much uh race uh and the history of black people is uh paramount to understand the united states right i think uh well, one more question before we get into some more details of the book uh, well two things really is um you obviously discussed the history of women in in new jersey history uh marion thompson right among others and um, how much does gender you sort of feature into this history of New Jersey? Women, black women play a prominent role, I think, uh, throughout the history of New Jersey in important moments when the Constitution gets rewritten and, you know, black women are there uh, in the suffrage movement. So that's you know, like one area yes. that I see. Well, I think when your very valuable book comes out, uh, we'll learn a lot more about that. But sure, I, I allude to, uh, to to women, and I, I, gender is important because uh, black women are the backbone of the uh, of black churches of New Jersey, uh, which right. are the primary community and intellectual forces of the, the state. Uh, Someone like Jarena Lee, uh, who is a uh, an evangelical speaker, an ordained uh, uh, exhorter during the 1820s, 1830s, highly influential, for example, on Harriet Tubman, uh, who, who had met her, uh, someone who influences, uh, people, uh, in Southern New Jersey to help out on the underground railroad. Uh, mm-hmm. so, I mean, those people are there front, the women, of course, are there as a primary force, uh, from the beginning. And you also have, uh, black women uh, during the colonial period, and we see them through the runaway ads. Uh, you know, that they also uh, have a lot to say about various subjects uh, or, the, you know, that they have uh, attitudes which their masters can barely tolerate. And that shows, you know, that there's a real dialogue and a tension about uh, their, their, their freedom seeking. Uh, and then, uh, as you point out in your valuable work, uh, there are uh, a series of black women's clubs, uh, YNWCAs, uh, churches, churches. Uh, political organizations in which women are involved in New Jersey from the beginnings of the 20th century right up to the present day. Uh, and, uh, you know, they are significant players. So sure, gender is, uh, is something that's very important. Right. I mean, I think the importance of, of, of having a survey text like this that feeds into so many different 
subfields of history, social history, intellectual history, cultural history, religion, and why it's so important. I think people forget that Harriet Tubman, as you said, comes through the state, Joanna Lee, who writes one of the first spiritual autobiographies, Mm -hmm. and um, other key uh, thinkers and activists in New Jersey takes us to focus more directly on your on your book here. And um, my next question is, who are some of the, the notable African-Americans in New Jersey history detailed in your book? We, we sort of began a discussion of some of them. Well, we did mention Colonel Ty and Jarena Lee. Uh, John S. Rock is a uh, black New Jersey lawyer. Uh, underground Railroad advocate, someone who uh, uh, later moves to Massachusetts and becomes a very prominent lawyer there. Um, George Cannon is a very interesting figure whom I detailed. Uh, he's a Lincoln graduate, and we should talk about the importance of uh, Lincoln University for black New Jersey men. Um, mm-hmm. And he's a political figure, a minister. Uh, a, uh, he establishes the Frederick Douglass uh, Motion Picture Theater, which produces several films in the t- early teens of the 20th century. Um, you know, he's someone who is a, a devoted Republican Party uh, member and, part, uh, and a key activist. Uh, this is when the Republican Party was truly the party of Lincoln, not the party of uh, the current administration. Mm-hmm. Um, someone like Paul Robeson, and my statement, my blanket statement on Paul Robeson, I think is absolutely true, is that the famed actor, singer, political activist, writer, Paul Robeson is the most important person ever produced by the state of New Jersey. Uh, and he's born and bred there. He's from Princeton. Uh, he goes to uh, Rutgers as one of the first African-Americans. I think he was like third or fourth. Uh, plays football as an All-American player. Plays Phi Beta Kappa, a person in his class. Uh, and then he goes off to world greatness. And so I think he's the, the greatest person New Jersey ever produced of any race. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's, he's highly significant. Um, and of course he's widely known too. Um, we were going to talk about Marion Thompson, right a little bit now or later. Uh, but let's also talk about Eric Morrow, who is the first black man to be an executive assistant to the president of the United States during the Eisenhower administration. Mm -hmm. And he had been a principal NAACP operative. Um, someone who comes from a very distinguished Hackensack family, that's Hackensack, New Jersey, uh, his brother becomes later becomes an ambassador. Uh, his sister, by the way, talking of gender, sister is a highly educated, talented person who is not allowed to teach white students because of her race. Mm-hmm. You know, and you get the sense from the Morrow family, uh, from others in the 1830s, uh, 1930s, excuse me, of their intense bitterness because they know they're as good as the whites, and sometimes they know they're a lot better than the whites who occupy positions, and they're kept out simply by Jim Crow. And it's it's tough on anybody, and so you just get a sense of these people. They're, they're willing to work hard. They believe in democracy. At the same time, you know, there's this underlying sadness and bitterness, which is very, very strong. And I, I think it's something that uh, is an emotional and philosophical sensibility that affects us of the present day. Um, Sarah Vaughan is one of the most important jazz singers ever. Uh, And she says to people, she said, you'd have to think of me as Sarah Vaughan from Newark. 
Hmm. I don't know. She, she goes out to Los Angeles and makes a lot of recordings. She's a world jazz figure, but she's still Sarah from Newark. And when she dies, that's where she's, you know, that's where their funeral is. And that, that's something telling about that. Um, more recently, and there are other people like this, uh, Imamu Amiri Baraka is uh, one of the most important figures of the black arts movement, a fascinating uh, uh, man, uh, a poet, playwright who combines political uh, and artistic visions. Uh, he goes, he's in New York and he says, no, I must be leave the bohemian world that I'm involved in and go back to Newark and there establish a black arts movement. And he does that. He does this theater there, uh, poetry, community activism, political activism. He's very important in the, uh, after, uh, again, the Gibson administration in the early 1970s and continues up to his death a few years ago. And of course, his son now, Ross Baraka, is the uh, mayor of, of, of Newark. Uh, so these are some of the many, many people uh, that I detail because I like to put capsule biographies in there. I think it's important that we get a sense through a single person uh, the visions and dreams of a family, a community, and of a people. Right. And that's why uh, is another reason why I wanted to interview you here, because as you said, you know, one way of doing intellectual history is these, you know, um, sort of capsule biographies that are um interwoven throughout this larger survey of the history of New Jersey. And the names that you just mentioned is really making an argument that feeds into the next question about how uniquely positioned were some members of the Black elite and professional class, like Robeson, who comes from an, you know, an old elite family, mm-hmm. uh, and um, the contributions that uh, women and others make to uh, the jazz era, you know, the development of jazz, the civil rights movement. And um, so is it, I mean, could we make the argument that, so New Jersey is central to the black arts movement, it's central to um, the rise of arts and culture, given that these New Jersey natives who are African-Americans, you know, play a larger national role in the history of the country. Could we make that argument that these, these individuals are uniquely positioned as members of the black elite professional class that give rise to the civil rights movement in America? Oh, I think you certainly can uh, make that argument uh, because Beginning in 1881, when New Jersey mandates education for blacks. Now, there were slippery areas within that law that allowed for segregation in school, New Jersey schools for another 70 years. Nonetheless, there were schools established. And as Marion Thompson Wright pointed out, some of those schools in the northern part of the state were really quite good. Um, and so education because it also combines with the religious vision of New Jersey's people, becomes a significant pathway towards success. And this is a way that black women, for example, can become involved in activism, okay? that they can step out of their roles as, as housewives or homemakers uh, into political ways, the way that black ministers can then expand their vision into politics, okay? the way that blacks can become critical intellectual figures. You know, when we, now you mentioned my, how my book is a, uh, one of the first surveys, I stand on the shoulders 
of Clement Price and Giles Wright, who are really significant writers of Black, Black New Jersey history. I couldn't have done it without what they did before. Right. And, and they are part of that um, the, 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 the class of, say, 1950s, 1960s, certainly 1970s, of young Black men and women uh, who go on to be intellectuals. Um, say if you have someone like Nell Painter, you know, who is not from New Jersey, but she winds up teaching at Princeton for a long, long time, retires, uh, moves to Newark, opens an art studio, becomes an artist after many years as an historian. These are the kind of people without whom my book or our whole understanding of black New Jersey and its intellectual tradition could not be understood. I mean, there are a lot of significant figures in Back to your question, yes, we can say that New Jersey is a significant contributor to national uh, arts and, uh, and and intellectual life. Right. So I'm feeding into another question about this uh, professional class uh, and the and long civil rights movement. There were some important uh, laws that were passed long before 1954 in New Jersey, and there's been, again, a lot of work on New York and the argument is made that, OK, you know, civil rights activism was, activism was happening in New York. But there's some key legislation that happens mm-hmm. in uh, New Jersey in the 1940s. Uh, can you, do you discuss that a little bit? Sure. Uh, New Jersey had strong Jim Crow from the 20s to the 40s, for sure. Uh, but the Republican Party, which is trying to maintain loyalty of black New Jerseyans, liberalizes. And this is part of a whole national mood during the 1940s to show that, you know, the American democracy is a genuine cross-racial democracy. It's, that's still, we're still working on that. Uh, nonetheless, uh, during the 1940s, you get in 1945 a state anti-discrimination a law, the creation of a, a task force to fight discrimination. 1947, you get key studies of New Jersey schools. And in 1948, you get a law against discrimination in schools and other parts of life. Importantly, not in housing. That's something that becomes a, uh, a, a, a judicial issue for decades after that. And one of the reasons why New Jersey still has such strong uh, racial problems today. But right. those laws, which are precede Bor- Brown versus Board of Education, and which are really uh, pioneering in national politics, at least establish a framework by which New Jersey can desegregate. Uh, it doesn't desegregate, and that's because of the uh, inability to solve housing problems. But even so, the establishment of the integration of schools will create a, people like Baraka, uh, who goes to a, a, a to a, a, an integrated school. He has a hard time of it, but he comes out of there with a pretty good education and goes on to Howard University and later becomes this world figure. There are a lot of people like that. They're the black middle class of New Jersey uh, the, uh, comes out of the opening of the schools, the opening of job opportunities in major organizations like the Prudential Life Insurance Company, okay? uh, and the recognition that with the growth of a black middle class in New Jersey, that companies have to pay attention to their customer base, establish uh, civil rights divisions within their organizations, hire black uh, blacks as officials in key positions, hire regular blacks as line workers. You know, this in every way lifts up the race 
uh, or at least it gives it its proper status in the state and establishes a middle class, which is still there. Okay? Uh, New Jersey's kind of bifurcated. There are a lot of very poor people, black people in New Jersey, but they're also a substantial middle class. And that's something which has been developing over the course of the 20th century, but really accelerated by those laws in the 1940s. All right. And that takes us to one of our uh, last questions regarding uh, Marion Thompson Wright and her role in um, getting some of these laws passed, like the Hedgepith uh, Williams um, versus Trenton Board of Education. As you mentioned, a lot of these things were happening before 1954, and uh, Marion Thompson Wright uh, plays a role. Can you tell us some more about your work on Marion Thompson Wright? Marion Thompson Wright is one of those figures. you know, I learned about them sort of in passing uh, and doing a book like Black New Jersey, and then they can really just grab you. And so her story is something which is uh, just uh, un- unforgettable. Uh, she's born in East Orange, lives early life in, 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 in Newark. Uh, her parents are very poor. Her father deserts the family when she's a child. Uh, she goes on to be a star student at what was then known as Newark Central High School, is now Barringer. Um, she's a top student and unexpectedly she drops out of high school and has very quickly two babies. And that should have been sort of the end of her. Uh, but she's got a lot of ambition and she goes back to school, enters Howard University without telling anybody that she's been married and now divorced and that she has these two children, um, gains a key mentor in the person of Lucy Diggs Stowe, who is the legendary Dean of students at Howard, uh, and goes on to get an MA first and then later a PhD at Columbia University. Uh, and her PhD dissertation, The Education of Negroes in New Jersey, which is still a very usable text. I mean, it's not dated at all. Uh, tells about the story of black education and by extension of black life in New Jersey from the colonial period right through the Reconstruction times uh, into the 20th century and then up into 1940. And then she continues that work while she's a professor at Howard uh, during the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, she was also, she kind of branched out. She's, she's an historian of ideas. She goes certainly an intellectual historian. Uh, but she's also interested in students. She does a lot of work on counseling. And she said, we pay so much attention to the gifted students. We had to also think about the ordinary the sort of middle of the middle road students at Howard and what they're doing. Of course, the students at Howard are going to be the elite of black America. So she's teaching them for uh, almost three decades. Uh, so she, she's a really significant person. She has key articles on New Jersey uh, in newspapers and a, a Pittsburgh uh, defender, excuse me, a Pittsburgh career. Uh, and then later on um, she does uh, additional articles uh, for uh, 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 file for theta uh, she does. She works uh, for the Journal of Negro History. She is the book review editor for the Journal of Negro Education for decades. She's a really significant figure. And uh, sadly enough, those early parts of her life come back to haunt her. Um, and she commits suicide in 1962, just when she was embarking on this major project of a biography of uh, Lucy Diggs Slow. Uh, and it's kind of, to me, it's a very interesting thing because here's somebody. Uh, who's such an intellectual force and so deeply engaged in the life of the mind, but depression and the sad decisions that she made in life, that iron will of ambition eventually break 
because of those the loss of her children because right. she loses them after uh, her husband gains custody she's never close to them really again i mean she has some relations but it's not the kind of maternal relation you would expect right. um but i mean she she's somebody with whom we get this whole mix of possibilities i mean uh Back to your interest, for example, in uh, black women's organizations, she belongs to all of them. Mm-hmm. But was it enough? Apparently not. So, I mean, she's. I'm, I, what, what's happening is right now I'm editing uh, a compilation of the of her, uh, of her book and our key articles uh, for publication by Rutgers University Press, and I'm little that by little. Great. Yeah, well, it will be. Uh, it's 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 you know it's, that her her name. Uh, bestoons the uh, annual lecture for Black History for New Jersey. It's the Marion Thompson Wright Lecture. But her book is out of print. It shouldn't be because, as I said, it's still a viable book. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, she also does a lot of other really interesting writers. She does really good book reviews. Uh, and so I got a review that she did of, of Du Bois' book and also one of Chester Himes. Uh, mm-hmm. So she's somebody we have to you know, get a sense of these Black intellectuals from the period of Jim Crow mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, all the substantial things that they did. So when it so that actually feeds into our last question, and it's uh, what are you what are your plans for future research, either this uh, work you're doing on right and beyond? Well, uh, yes, I do. I'm I kind of interested in, and I probably will eventually do a uh, a biography of Wright because I'm in touch with her family. I've got a lot of photos of her. I've got some fascinating letters. Um, I know some a lot more things about her than any of us have ever really known before. So there's mm-hmm. a real possibility of at least a short biography, or I think would be very useful. Beyond that, I'm my big project is on uh, uh, the Underground Railroad writ large as Black Flight in the Americas from 1550s up to the 1870s, and so this is a way to recast the Underground Railroad as a many-centuried struggle against enslavement. Uh, the drive for freedom by, by ordinary people. Uh, so that that's a big project, and I've got an NEH uh, fellowship this year to try to do something on it, and I'm trying to do that. Uh, beyond that, also, just out of, uh, sort of tangentially, my school at Colgate University has asked me to develop a film script on black men at Colgate. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is uh, kind of a fun thing to do uh, about the black men who were at Colgate between the 1840s uh, and ending up with Adam Clayton Powell uh, Jr., uh, in the 1940s. So there are a lot of, there are a little small projects, but those are things I'm, I'm sort of working on. I'm mm-hmm. glad my, my taxi book has got a new edition for the Uber era, which is just coming out <laughs> right now. Uh, and I'm I was really glad to do that because, uh, you know, it, Uber is a, a significant uh, challenge to the way taxi driving has been done. And I think that uh, I'm, I'm a big defender of the medallion system, as you can see in that book. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I try to stay very active because it's such a great job. And as you know, if it works right, uh, being a professor is one of the best jobs in the world. It is. I agree with that. (laughs) Well, Dr. Hodges, we have taken up enough of your time this morning, but I want to thank you for participating in this interview about your important book, Black New Jersey. Well, I'm very glad to be a part of this and always willing to Yes, talk about myself and my books. Uh, It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Hetty. I'm looking forward to your book on Marion Thompson Wright. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you.